It looks cool. It sounds cool. It's like selling a, it's like a Coca-Cola commercial. Like, grab some cocaine. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. All right, everybody. It's time for one fucking hour. Uh, This is Evan Husney. And I'm joined, of course, by my co-host to my left, Tom Fitzgerald. Hello, folks. <laughs> and to my right, Mr. Marcus Herring. <laughs> How you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing good. It's good to be here. <laughs> All right. And um, man, uh, thanks to everybody who checked out uh, last week's episode, which was one fucking hour on Overnight, um, the documentary uh, chronicling the making of Boondock Saint Anger. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun oh and um, just before we get into this week's film and fucking hour I just wanted to roll it back for maybe a new segment we can have here called one fucking hour overtime if you guys are cool with that because I really wanted to follow up <laughs> on something that you said Tom because after the, the you know going an hour on that movie I, I, I actually couldn't stop looking into it and I was researching it more because you brought up a very interesting uh, conspiracy theory, if you will, uh, in our last episode, uh, basically alleging that Harvey Weinstein didn't really have much of an intention to ever produce Boondock Saints, mm-hmm. or is fifty-fifty at best, right? At best. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was uh, on a YouTube spiral, and I came across a recent Troy Duffy interview. Okay, and this is like two hours long. I'm going to put it in the description for anybody that wants to cool. watch Jesus. this. Two fucking hours huh, with Troy Duffy. <laughs> Two fucking hours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, and he's, he's, he's put together better in this. And, um, but he, 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 he touches on um, the, the making of Boondock Saints from his point of view, and he touches on Overnight. First time I think he's ever really talked publicly about oh, Overnight. Wow. So that's okay. really interesting, right? But yeah. he brought up kind of this missing piece of the puzzle about how the wine the the miramax deal came together for boondock saints which which i I thought i I don't remember this being an overnight and i think this is a missing piece here he was saying that you know his buddy cb that we talked about last week he Mm -hmm. was working some producer desk job at new line cinema at the time and he ran the script up the flagpole and the ceo the guy the head of the studio read the script loved it wanted to buy it and then Miramax caught wind of that. Okay. Oh. So that's there Hollywood. you go. That yeah. well, now is at Hollywood, but then what's what's the perfect Harvey move? Get the script yeah. first, win the bidding war, and then shut it down. With just it. just sit on it with a PR headline where you know yeah. he comes out victorious. So I think you might Nothing's be right. Nothing's more Hollywood. No, there you go. Nothing's more Hollywood than that. No, but also bonus for uh, Weinstein because he's one of those lizard brain you know psychopaths. He, he actually was like, you know, it's like gambling. It's like, or, or, you know, making deals, obviously he's a deal maker, but it's like, uh, yo, I do that. And what I do is I just go like, Hey, he was found at a bar and I'm going to buy the bar. And so it's like free publicity. So he gets two things for nothing. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, He gets it's to bury his competitions script. Right. And exactly. he gets a, he gets to be victorious. So I think that cheesy, is, cheesy publicity. Yep. There, yeah, you, go. there you go. Because and again, he has better taste in scripts than what that boondock looked like on paper, I'm sure. That's my <laughs> that, only reason. That boondock. <laughs> um, uh, that boondock the only other, 
the only other thing that's really worth it out of that Troy Duffy piece real fast is how he learned how to write a script, which is by getting his friend to give him a copy of the Francis Ford Coppola script to Jack, which he copied the format of. So he's writing Boondock Saints while reading wow. through Jack with Robin Williams, the movie about, you know, uh, Progeria, whatever that disease is. <laughs> so next week's film well, is uh, Jack, right? Yeah. That's what we're going to do next hey, week. I it's would. a Coppola film, you know? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but... Uh, I think we have plans for a different Robin Williams we do in the future yeah. though, right? hey no spoilers but you know what um that sounds like almost tommy wiseau-esque you know what i mean it does like so i, I studied jack and then i learned the, the architecture of making a movie you know jack there's so okay. many scripts out there you know. thank you for that you exactly well, how did you, how, do how superfly. Did you get that one yeah. and why would you pick that like one? do superfly for instance <laughs> uh so um how's the the uh, overtime bag looking we got anything else so the only other thing in the overtime bag that I want to just get out there is we got an amazing comment. Now I'm going to turn the time machine back two weeks to our Phantasm episode. Um, we got a great comment from Roberto A. Quisada. I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, you, he was an assistant editor and gaffer on the original Phantasm. And um, he wrote in, he listened to the show, and this is what he said. I'm just going to read it. He said, hey, fellas, great analysis of Phantasm. I worked on a few of them. You guys were right on the money with the influences. Coscarelli's favorite film of all time was Space Odyssey. Suspiria and Louis Buñuel and Dali were subjects of many conversations I had with him before and after make the making of Phantasm. I mean, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And he said, uh, whenever any crew members like me questioned the logic of a scene, he and Pepperman, I think that's the producer, would chuckle and say, oh, it's only a dream. Uh, since there was no complete... There you go. I know. Since there was no completed script except the pages we were working on each weekend, the film was shot on weekends over six months. We had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> As for music, at one point in your great breakdown of the movie, thank you, you wonder if Don is into rock and roll. Uh, yes. Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, everyone you mentioned. Love your album cover analysis as well. So right on. Don and Paul. Then he goes on to say, Don and Paul edited the film themselves, and then Don laid down music tracks on each scene using the music of the very bands you discuss. How fucking cool is that? So, so, so let's slow down a little. So he did use temp <laughs> tracks, like rock stuff. And I, I kind of exercised this, if I might. I played No Quarter and just threw on Phantasm, Led Zeppelin's No Quarter. And it was like, I, I don't know if he used it, but it just feels so fucking right to have like the visuals of Phantasm and like a song that sounds like No Quarter. And right. I get it, man. I get it. There's so. that Hounds of Hounds of Hell line in it too. It's like, oh, oh yeah. Like slow yeah, gold, gold, gold. gold. About. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> so I tested it and I was like, well, it's what, it's what, it's what, hey, it's what the, uh, the Jack director, uh, Francis Coppola did too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he played uh, for Apocalypse Now. He had a lot of temp track rock and roll, you know, that uh, didn't make it into the film. God, uh, I want to. should have done that for Boondock. Boondock should have tried that. I'm sure they did, you know? um, actually. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, Stone Temple okay. Pilots. Okay. So anyway, he it's says, uh, yeah, and then he said, you know, that the guy who scored uh, the film, Fred Myro, uh, actually, you know, looked at, watched that cut and and and, and interpreted that oh. for when he wrote all the music. Um, he says lots of non. Is there a VHS of that? I hope. You know? Oh my God. God I hope. damn it! Or at least notes we could recreate it. I want to do that. The only other thing he says that I want to just bring up here, too, is the film was conceived and shot long before Halloween and Star Wars. Um, so, and he says that he remembers meeting with Peppermint and Coscarelli to discuss, to discuss whether or not to reshoot all the scenes with the dwarves when they read about and saw pictures of the hooded characters. 
So wow. and that and that's <laughs> there you go. So I mean, he had the Jawas before the Jawas, man. That's um, that's amazing because because he nails it like the size, the hood, you know, like uh, the faceless hooded. You know, it's like he just gets it. Um, it's just this parallel thinking in California in the mid seventies. Amazing. Yeah, something in the water over there with the dwarf. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, it's a certain kind of LSD tab or something <laughs> going around. I don't know. All right. The brown. Well, it's awesome. That's yeah. some good overtime. Yeah. Thank you, Roberto, for writing in. That was yeah, just man. amazing. Made our week, actually. Really appreciate um, it. Amazing. Really appreciate it. Yeah. More of that, please. Um, all right. So let's get into this week's episode, this week's film. This fucking hour is going to be on the 1972 uh, crime film, uh, masterpiece, landmark in, in, in cinema. Um, that is Gordon Parks Jr.'s Superfly. Um, and I'm going to begin the countdown, the hour countdown, right now. All right. So, Tom, you and I were talking about this. I think when we were kind of picking uh, what films or discussing what films we were going to cover on the show, I mean, Superfly was one we both were like, yes, yes, yes. There's so much to talk about with this movie. And yeah. um, for me, it's like the thing that I think we both were, 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 were really focused on was this idea of how amazing the movie looks and how it feels. I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a gritty street movie. And to me, like, there's no better aesthetic than that handheld 35 millimeter, you know, gritty camera work, you know, a shot on location, documentary feel. And this movie, it, it has the, like, like the feeling of gritty 35 millimeter, like photographic quality. Like, you know, every, every yeah. scene feels like it could be a snapshot, you know, which, which I love. And one thing you said um, which I was like, ah, oh, I could totally see that, is how the movie kind of evokes French connection to you a little bit. Look and feel. Mm -hmm. can, yeah. can you explain? Well, I mean, uh, right off the bat, the denominator is, of course, early 70s New York City. Uh, so that's the backdrop that you have. It's not just those, um, the, the tactics of using on-location you know, set, you know, settings and uh, even the handheld stuff. It's, it's, they're in this, I mean, one's in Harlem and one's more or less downtown, but it's still, you know, New York City. And uh, that was a rough place from all indications. It uh, was really like a hellhole kind of and very, uh, you know, uh, full of trash. And just if you happen to go by any street, you find uh, people living very desperate and just garbage and like really ugly graffiti, you know, and just like buildings that are falling apart, like bombed like, out sections like, of town, you know? Yeah. Like, like, like you have scaffolding now in Manhattan, but you know, these <laughs> yeah. places were just crumbling in front of your eyes. So, it so those like two London after the blitz or something. Yeah. And so you, you have a denominator with French and, and Superfly with those. And then also I was thinking today that uh, there's no better, bummer new york city early 70s uh no better season i mean uh, than winter and they're both set in the winter because it's just extra harsh you know what i mean it's not like oh it's kind of a sunny day let's go to the park or something and like it's kind of kind of okay you yeah. know what i mean this is yeah. just like total icy death and grayness and like you know really and it looks fucking cold especially in french connection so um yeah that's what got in my mind and then uh, you pointed out that uh both of them kind of uh, start pretty much around um the starting point is like chases, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Hackman, uh, and, and, you know, is chasing the, the suspect they want to shake down. And, uh, and then, um, Shaft, sorry, Superfly in his film is, uh, chasing the junkies who tried to shake him down in his hallway. So, uh, they're very similar. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some kind of French connection, um, influence. It was a huge film. It won best picture. It was a huge hit. 
and uh, they were making it like they're making uh, Superfly right around the time it was breaking as this phenomenon. And um, and because French Connection is not to be underestimated as far as how acceptable can you make an ugly setting for your film and specifically how ugly will you allow New York City to be portrayed? And I've had I have many thoughts on this. I could do a whole wow. thing on it, but it was the very beginning of it's like, Oh, the, like with French Connection. Oh, the hell with it. Let's just New York City looks like shit. Like, let's just let's do it. You know, that's what freaking <laughs> said. It's like we're not going to like shoot around it or like try to get nice angles. It's just like just be here in this really fucked up place. So Superfly well, followed that. Well, and, and, and not to beat a dead horse on, on 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 this topic here, but you also kind of mentioned like, you know, French Connection opens when they're busting in the bar. But it's almost yeah. kind of as if the scene continues into the opening of Superfly. Right. Right. It's when. uh Yeah. It's like when Popeye Doyle. Uh, early on, Roy Scheider and Hackman are, um, they want some information and they have an informant in a, in a, in a bar, in a, in a, you know, in a black bar. And um, like uh, they go in and they, they play, it's a pantomime game. This is a scene, if, if you're a fan of the film, you know it. It's where they go and they make a milkshake, you know, and they put all the drugs that the dealers have in this bar that they're shaking down and they put it all in a hat and shake it up and go, ah, there's your milkshake, you know. And so, um, but it's, but it's as if that very same bar depicted in French Connection, you th- let's say the cops leave and then you just pan down the hall in the back by the jukebox and it is Superfly talking with Eddie and 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 Freddie. You know, it's just the same world and it has that same connective tissue. And that's the beauty of it because you're basically trading off, you know, when and, and French Connection is cops and there's a lot of cop energy and um and uh uh cops busting drug drug deals too. It's it's a very very aligned, you know what I mean? You're just seeing it from a different perspective. Or it's almost like the, you know, the junkies, the junkies in the opening of um, Superfly that actually jump, you know, Young Blood Priest, you know, the main character in the film. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like you're almost following these two characters who are the opening of this is the opening of the film, and yes. um, and it's just amazing because here here like you have this gritty New York. Um, handheld 35 millimeter, that awesome just aesthetic, yeah. and then you have did, the soundtrack. How do they do in. that? Big heavy cameras, it's amazing. And wires just going I, in I front of the know, lens. I, yeah. Okay. Because I mostly know 16 millimeter handheld, 35. Uh, okay. Sometimes they're shooting in the uh, red. They're shooting out of the back of like a. What the the wardrobe guy had like a or somebody had like a uh, convertible VW that they're shooting out of the back of. Oh uh, cool. yeah, I, I heard about that. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing about this, another thing I'll say that's interesting. God, I wish we didn't have just one hour because this is an important film for me. But one thing is, if you look at it, Superfly weirdly starts with these, uh, with with junkies on the street, you know, um, just sort of walking around having a miserable life. And that's the tone that Superfly starts with. You know, it's not even our characters, really. It's just junkies having an awful existence. And my point is, this chase ends not in some kind of cool, glamorous way. I mean, a priest does catch them but it's in this really small apartment crammed with kids there's not enough room for this family to live and then he's you know kicks the junkie in the stomach and he vomits and, and what i mean is it's so harsh yes. and it's so uh as 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 um eddie says it's like it is like it's it's actually you know it, it this film is very strange because that was not a glorifi- glorification of like um, the life of like an action cool guy in the street. Like you're watching like a, a, a man who's got a miserable life vomiting on this poor family's floor. That's that's he the leaves tone. Them there. That's the he tone like they're setting. The, 
he doesn't toss him out the door or anything like that. He leaves him there. He's like, your problem now, you know? Yeah, right. I'm just saying it, it sets this tone and it's actually like extra harsh, you know? And, 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 and then it chafes with the sexy uh, shots of, of, the, of the car, you know, with the title shot, you know, we, we have that too. But that's the kind of thing that goes back and forth with, with, with uh, Superfly that's so interesting about it. But it definitely starts very uh, unglamorously and harshly about what it's really like on the streets. Absolutely. And <clears throat> I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this movie in particular, I mean, is obviously the main creative force, uh, Gordon Parks Jr., um, who, who directed this film. Very interesting background. And I think not a lot of people are aware that his father, Gordon Parks Sr., who was a renowned photographer, um, you know, who captured interior life of black people across the country. He was, you know, kind of a, uh, I, I think I actually read that he was the first black staff photographer at Life magazine, you know, yeah. ever, which is amazing. Um, and he went on to direct Shaft and he directed that uh, the year prior, which is just, is just totally fascinating. But um, Gordon Park Sr.'s uh, sort of photography, uh, in particular his, his crime photography, his street crime photography, um, which I found to be very interesting and and really evoked. I mean, his son must have had some influence on you know from that from from his father's sort of lens. Oh. You know, in terms of yeah. that, that's kind of what I was picking up. And this one particular series that I thought was pretty interesting called Gordon Parks and the Atmosphere of Crime. I just picked a couple of his photographs that I think to me really said Superfly. I wanted to show you guys this real quick. Check out this cool. shot here. So this wow. is. And this kind of reminds me of the opening shots of, of Superfly, you know, as the two junkies are on the rooftop. Yeah, yeah I know. Absolutely. It looks like a still from the movie. Yeah. I know. And this is uh, like late 50s, is when this is. Um, and just here's another. Very cool. Here's another awesome uh, real shot here of a drug search. Cops doing a drug search and some, Jeez. you know, yeah. late 50s crash pad here. Um, so yeah. Gordon Park Sr. is shooting all of these. Um, this to me was French Connection. Here, Damn. two, two yeah. detectives busting down the door. I just love the quality of these photos. It's amazing. And just those squalid oh, hallways. God. You know, I mean, that's that's a sign of a really serious uh, motherfucking um, early 70s crime film. It's all about those hallways, dude. You know what I mean? Like Serpico <laughs> yeah. is like ultimate, like fucked up hallways. Like <laughs> random people, you know, like, like har harassing you in those hallways. It just looked lawless. You know, totally. so that's an incredible shot. Yeah. Um, just that. I mean, this is the 50s. It looks like it's out of a, some sort of neo-noir neo film, but it's just amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Cop, cop and radio. Mm -hmm. And then that's I. Awesome. I guess. Last one here. Just I just I just love this. The brass knuckles and the gun. You know, yeah. just, just 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 that's really so cool, cool. Cool stuff. I had, to, I had to pull. Yeah. yeah Senior wrote a he wrote a photography like, you know, learning book, like educational book on photography. So. You know, you can be sure he thought his he passed on the, uh, you know, the art form to his son too. Totally. And uh, Gordon Parks Jr. You know, his background just as the filmmaker, the filmmaker of Superfly, his background is he studied in France, and uh, he was he worked and was influenced by a French documentary filmmaker. You know, um, so he also had you know was really inspired by documentary style stuff which Superfly has all over it, you know? Um, yeah. And of course, you know, he, and then Gordon Parks Jr. became a photographer. Fun fact, he was the stills photographer on Godfather 1. So, you know, which is again, oh, wow. year before. So that's no kind of interesting wow. too, that he's capturing that's that. That's amazing. 
And oh, that's so good. Yeah, and you know both <laughs> films, Superfly and Godfather, kind of you know utilize you know an underworld of crime as kind of a you know parallel it's to. Been a, it has yeah. been on my mind. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, it's sort of like not to get the whole, do a whole Godfather thing, but you know Michael Corleone is is not wanting to get in, and his you know his father doesn't want him to get in. Right. And and you know and and so. Um, a priest wants to get out in Superfly. So it's like um, there's this central negative vortex orb of the life of crime. And it's like like you're either like just comfortably right in the middle, like Eddie, like fuck it. Or you've got these people who are kind of like pulling, you know, like you're pulling in, you're trying to pull out. And uh, that seems to be um, really a classic motif. And that's one of the great things that uh, Superfly does is render the classic crime push and pull of attraction and revulsion um, and, and puts it in what hadn't been seen, which is in a black American context, you know? Absolutely. Like you had, seen, like you had seen it with Italian Americans, uh, obviously, you know, a hundred percent. And real quick, just to put a bow on the photography end of um, Superfly, I think maybe, I don't know, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie <clears throat> is the cocaine montage in the movie, which is absolutely just, it's incredible. And uh, these are all photos taken, of course, by Gordon Parks Jr. that he put together as a montage in the middle of the film showing, uh, you know, when uh, Youngblood Priest and Eddie are uh, going to town and, 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 and hustling and selling these 30 keys that they got. It's the final it's the final big score. Yeah. Yeah. You just play. You just like it because that hard hat white guy is there. I, I love <laughs> I love hard hat right. white guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, with the American flag in his hard hat. But uh, no, and also shout out to uh, Marcus here. Um, it's a great um, montage, but it also gets into graphic montage, you know, like the, the tripling of the stills and it's having yeah, it's that kind multi- of early. Yeah. Yeah, that multi frame. And uh, yeah, it almost reminded me of like a Chris Marker or something, you know, like telling the movie, the movie right here told with stills. Yes. The, totally. Having multiple panels. Per but the frame. creativity yeah, so of, cool. of like, yeah, like inside the frame of. Uh, of composition. Uh, you know, yeah, the composition, you know. Um, I, I love here that they're the, the album, one of the albums they're cutting rails off of is the There's a Riot going on. I Slide the Family Stone. The other one was. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I never saw that. Couldn't figure That's out the other busy. one. It says something strings, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, too busy looking don't. at the hard hat guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was too. Is he not on our, he's not on our Instagram yet? Okay. <laughs> he will oh, be. Yeah, he, he, he is. Yeah. Got okay. He just he posted today. <laughs> Um, hard hat, hard hat coat uh, buyer. Are we going to get to this? A long scene. Oh, yeah, but it, there's it, a plenty. Well, can, can I say it one looks thing so about natural this? and fun? It got them to laugh and smile. It looks like a great time, you know. Like this yeah. is the glamour part. You know? well, well, I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's one thing I just want to say about this too. Is that like, and this is '72, you know. So, so, so cocaine was very different then than it than it would become later into the decade and into the '80s. I mean. This wasn't something that, you know, people on the street really had access to. You know, this was a drug that was kind of for the elite or the people that really could afford it. And yeah, it was it expensive. Go- yeah. It was expensive. And it really, I think one thing that we're going to get into is the entrepreneurship of, the you know, of, you know, Youngblood and, and really penetrating these different markets across the city. That's what's br- brilliantly shown here in this montage where you do have hard hat white guy and these other people, you know, buying from them and it's really showing this yeah. whole network that right. he's created and uh, cl- clearly rich bourgeois people too like yes like like we can talk about later maybe like uh you know priest's uh, mistress 
and he, you know he's, he says to her she's like a kind of an uptown white girl there he is and uh and, you know, and he says like you're just about my best uh you're about you're about as good a dealer as i am or something because she knows all these like you know warhol kind of scene people and they want coke you know you know the thing is this is the second big coke deal movie phenomenon because easy rider you know a lot of people don't know or remember but those guys are hauling cocaine in easy rider yeah and it was very it was very novel and weird cocaine was an obscure drug i mean if you went to a rock festival for instance and so the lumpen proletariat it's weed um it's a lot of speed actually like speed was fucking huge actually more and, and it's probably dirt cheap compared to coke and then like of right. course booze like, and then um, like like over the counter speed too like prescription pills yeah right? and, and then like and that. then pills yeah lots of pills and cocaine was way down the list there's probably almost hardly any cocaine at like uh one of those big 1969-70 festivals like um goose lake festival uh <laughs> i've been researching that one like cocaine <laughs> a it was just too expensive and it also wasn't really on people's radar it wasn't really in their lifestyle i could see new york city definitely gravitating towards coke even early on like then in the early 70s because it's part of a lifestyle. Let's go dancing at a, at a discotheque. You know what I mean? You know, there nope. he is. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was also, also it was a big sex drug too, you know? It was less about getting loaded and sitting in the mud. You know, it, it's more about like uh, urban. It's very urban, you know? So it, it really took off in New York. But again, this is still incredibly early for the cocaine phenomenon. That's true. What an amazing... It really blew up later high art scene i mean that really is like a, it's a three minute passage in a movie like that how freaking oh, cool and is what that? you're hearing is pusher man underneath it you know right which we'll definitely Bruce get Field. into we should definitely get into the, the whole fucking hour on the soundtrack for sure but um <clears throat> before <know>. we do that <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about this movie because obviously you know it, it, stylistically the movie's off the charts it's it's incredible stylistically but also the, look, the sound yeah but you know, I mean, for me, the the term, you know, black exploitation. I think this movie really does transcend. I know that's a historical term, kind of looking at, you know, a lot of the films yeah, coming out yeah. into the early and the mid-70s, a lot of the studio ones especially. But yeah. this movie, I think, really transcends this. I really do look at this movie as uh, an incredible, you know, gritty crime film that has a lot to say. And, um, yeah. and, and it's even, you know pretty existential too in terms of the struggle that goes on between young blood priest who's the main character in the film um and you know he's an interesting you know he's an interesting character because here's a guy you know he's a connected dealer he's at the top of his trade ostensibly i mean he has he has all the material items he could probably want um but yet he you know this comes back a lot in our show the malaise he's got the american dream as yeah, he says. Right, right. <laughs> and he's disenchanted with life, and he yearns for something more. So he wants out, you know. And 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 Superfly becomes this amazing story about for 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 young blood priest. He want it's all about self determination and independence, and that's what he really yeah. wants. And throughout the whole film, he's really pondering that. And um and and this is not something that's subtle in the movie at all. All the characters are talking about this constantly. You know, so yeah, he's not happy about his situation. There's a I, I read a quote from Ron O'Neill where he says, like, you know, a, 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 the the black man becomes a hustler because he's forced or led into it by socioeconomic force. This is him talking about his own character. Mm-hmm. So being a hustler is not a fun thing, and you know, and he's like, I think we show that in the movie. 
I think he's react. You know, I think he's reacting to maybe criticism at the time that the film was glorifying that lifestyle. Mm. But the film does make it very clear that he's unhappy, like doing that line of work. You know, totally. And he's over it, <clears throat> and, and and wants and to leave it. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the whole uh, arc of the movie. You know, he wants to get out. Absolutely, and 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 on that point, Marcus, too. One thing I I thought I felt you know was interesting is that. Um, Lindsay Peterson, one of the few black film critics to praise this movie um, upon its release, said mm. that the movie presented an important message about the failure of American society to freely provide legitimate opportunities for its bright but impoverished young black men. And that's kind of right on. Right. That's what Ron's saying about his character, too. And it's like, right. yeah, if if you have the skills to be an entrepreneur in this right. world, th the only thing you can really do is apply it to a life of crime, you know, and that's one well, that's thing what Eddie this... says, right, right. There's a right. direct quote from Eddie. We didn't pull it or anything, but um, it's him reacting to first hearing of priests uh, idea to do one big score and then leave the game. He just says, uh, this is the only game that uh, the white man gave us, you know, and uh, and so so you have to make a choice. And, um, you know, early on, there's a couple things going on, frankly, I think, too, there's there's definitely just the um, the, uh, you know, um, the necessity to make more than like what you, the pittance you might make at McDonald's or something like that, uh, you know. Um, but also, there's this other thing uh, that's a very American story. And later on in the film, he is talking to his white kind of uptown chic mistress, and he says, "You know what? Honestly, lady, I thought I wanted something when I was young. When I got this whole game started, being a coke guy, uh, I thought I wanted this. I thought I wanted the car." the cool apartment, a girl like you. And then now and it's disillusionment, which is actually a broader American story, you know, in a way like where uh, the um, the totally. materialist, uh, the, yeah, like uh, getting, uh, you know, glitter, glitter in your eyes with the materialism. And then you just sit down one day and take a deep breath and go, this is not making me happy. And what does make him happy is being with his girlfriend, Sheila Frazier, you know, Georgia. And um, and it looks like they have a very real deep connection him and, and Sheila, you know, and um, on all She's, fronts, you know, yeah. and, and that's rewarding. And he's really over so the sort of plastic um, thing that uh, American capitalist culture does, consumer culture does, which is like, like, this will make you happy. Um, you know, just keep fighting to make just a little more. And Eddie's playing that game, you know, too. Um, and, and, and also just rambling a little bit, um, Eddie and uh, Priest are um, the two op uh, oppositions. Like Eddie, a long time ago, made a decision to just like groove right into this, you know? And uh, he's just like, he's just gonna live comfortably uh, because he's got nothing else is more or less his take on it. You know, he says it a few times. He's like, I don't have anything else. We have a, sh a clip from the movie yeah. uh, sure. in there. So, so pre but, but the thing is, Eddie maybe really doesn't have anything. And he even confesses to Priest. He goes, you know, without you, Priest, uh, I'd, I'd have OD'd by now. You know what I mean? Because Eddie doesn't really quite have the goods. So it's kind of a meritocracy thing. Uh, in a perfect world, a black man would have in a meritocracy, a real one, meritocracy. He would be able to be a successful entrepreneur because Priest is a sharp dude. He totally. is a possibly a, a very successful businessman. Eddie, not so much. So he knows his limitations. So anyway, it's just, I think there's a bunch of stuff going on here that are very universal stories in um, a, a crazy capitalist system like America's. Well, it's not the only Definitely time we've it. talked about consumerism on this show, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Go on though, Marcus. 
Oh, no. I mean, I was going to stay on the same topic. Just it's really interesting, like the different le levels of how they deal with the socioeconomic situation and capitalism. I feel like, you know, we, it, it, at, at the start, he's sort of he's a capitalist exceeding uh, succeeding like outside the system, but within the bounds of capitalism. Like he's still like, you know, selling and slinging to to to, to make himself. Yeah. Supply and demand. Yeah, supply and demand exactly, and there's Elemental. a really amazing there's a really amazing scene that shows sort of a clash. It sort of outright deals with this, with the clash between like capitalism and collective action. When uh, Youngblood is inside of a a cafe and he gets approached by a group of like it looks like an ideological group of like black power collectivism militants. and they militants. and they and they militants yeah and they try to shake him down to contribute to the cause, and he turns them away. And I just thought that was an interesting sort of like contrast with, you know, his sort of like take on like, this is, I'm trying to get mine to get out of this. And then they're sort of saying like, let's give to the cause so that we can get out of this together. You but know, do you see the reaction to doing these clashing there? Yeah. I think there's a third thing happening though, in that, and it's very sophisticated uh, in that one brief scene, an observation of the, of the social climate in um, where a, a black power progresses, where it's going in the 19 early 70s because um really what uh his real reaction priests is that they're just jive and they're all talk and again he, he has a really ice cold awesome retort to those guys <laughs> which is uh when i see you with a gun in your hand i'll get a gun in my hand and all your guys get a gun in your hand and i'll cut down whitey with you guys no question and so and until then just go away because like to him it's just jive talk and it's like rhetoric and um pumping up your fist and and marching and he's just like well what is that so and then really when the guys the militants walk out him and eddie just have this knowing look at each other and it just kind of like it's kind of just like uh who are those clowns you know what i mean like they don't I, really yeah. get any of this you know what i mean they don't they don't get uh uh, like it is, uh, to quote Eddie, you know what I mean? Like um, they're just floating around in sort of um, Marxist rhetoric uh, because that was very big back then, quite honestly, right. you know, just right. spouting off, but not really uh, like building any conclusions. It was just a lot of um, hot air. And that's what I saw was the takeaway. He wasn't saying, because it's funny, because Priest could have said as the character in the narrative of the film, he could have said like, look, you get yours like I get mine. He doesn't actually say that. So anyway, he just he just finds it to be full of jive. And uh, there is some fatigue post civil rights 60s, probably by the early 70s, where guys like him. And again, Priest is a smart person. He's like, uh, you're not a, a horse to bet on. Like you're not doing anything. So I'm not even mm. going to really think about doing joining at all, joining or anything with you guys. And right. not much came of that stuff of militancy right too, the revolution hasn't produced any change right well, yeah. it wasn't a revolution that's right. my point that's what that's what priest is responding to you know yeah like yeah like that, they're not yeah. really they're not street level they're just speaking in sort of college marxist rhetoric anyway um well one Complex. of the things it's interesting totally yeah just of what's you know happening at the time that one scene yeah. And that one scene, and it's it's really you know capturing a lot of the things that was happening in, in, in that specific amount of, you know in that time. Can um, I take advantage of this? Sure. Maybe and start bringing up the uh, the cast and crew, the people b behind and in front of the camera. Yeah. You know, right. did we want to maybe go down that road because it's so rich and you know uh, classic dumb 
Tom one fucking hour theory. And we've gotten into this a bit and we will again, I'm sure, uh, especially with low budget films like this that aren't studio driven, you know, top down driven decisions. Um, this is a great collection of people uh, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I always think like like it wasn't quite an auteur thing, you know, like it wasn't like like a complete vision where, you know, everyone's just like a, a puppet and there's a puppet master auteur that um, that sort of iconic consideration of like a big auteurist uh, classic film. No, I think films like this, Texas um, and Superfly, again, very low budget is that they, they they chose and they lucked out and they got an incredible group of people in each position. Uh, and, and each of those vital positions were all these people who brought a lot to the table and, and had talent, but they're also very inspired. You know, not to get sidetracked, but in Texas Chainsaw, um, the guy who plays Leatherface, he researched, you know, mentally uh, in incapacitated people's uh, body movements. You know, like some other guy who was cast as Leatherface might not have done it. So what I'm saying is you've got everything. You've got Phil Philip Fenty is who I wanted to bring up. Mm -hmm. So he is the screenwriter and he has a lot going on, man. And th this incredibly uh, uh, succinct scene we just described Nuanced, that articulates yeah. so much. And yeah, um, that's a tribute to Phil Fenty. So he's the first on my list. A very interesting person. He didn't make many other uh, scripts. He did The Baron a few years later, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then even Ron O'Neill, actually, uh, <laughs> he was friends with Phil Fenty, a guy who plays Superfly. Uh, he was personal friends. And Ron O'Neill contributed a lot. So they collaborated. It was a, it was a, there was, it wasn't just like a people, um, and then I'll shut up. But I'm just saying like, no one here was just punching the clock. Everyone brought a lot to the film because they were really inspired. That's I can tack onto that a little bit too. Like Ron, yeah, he was like a Shakespearean actor, right? He's like trained Shakespearean actor. A thespian. And uh, like you said, they, they went to school together, him and Phil. And then like, uh, I guess Phil took the uh, the story to Nate Adams, who was like, uh, ran an employment agency and was also like doing the wardrobe for it. He's the guy that, um, I don't know his character's name in the, in the film, but he wears sort of a gray check suit, a gray plaid suit. He did the wardrobe for the film and he found like Casey who had the car and stuff. All the, all the little pieces came together. Like you, as you say, and they knew Gordon uh, Jr. And, and Gordon Jr. Was able to make it because of his father's success the year before. So yeah, it is like you said, it's sort of a ensemble crew that really makes it all come together. And, and, and let me tack onto that. If I may, um, I was, I was looking into this a little bit too, just into how this movie kind of came together and, and what really a lot, what really gave way to a lot of these uh, talents coming together to make this movie is uh, first, you know, the film is completely independently financed. This is an independent movie. Um, yeah. Unlike it's by dentists. Uh, well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, Sorry. Unlike a lot of the studio black exploitation films, which are, you know, run by, you know, a studio and, and, and things like that. This film is, yeah, financed primarily. The main two financiers were, were black dentists. You know, and this movie uh, set a precedent as being uh, the first major distributed film to be financed predominantly by a black limited partnerships, which is super cool. And one of the first majorly distributed films to have a largely non-white technical crew. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and how that came to be is the dentists, one of their demands uh, in the film was to press for the labor their labor redistribution behind the camera. You know, which 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 gave way to that, and they actually so cool. tapped, yeah, and they tapped the Third World Cinema Corporation, which was the Harlem-based collection, uh, uh, the Harlem-based um, 
uh, collective, collective. Excuse me. Yes, yeah, yeah. I was looking for, which was co-founded in 1971 by um, Ozzy Davis. So his awesome. collective is what really kind of, you know, um, put a lot of you know uh, these guys into this into working into this movie and other yeah. media I- industries around the world. Right, and 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 so uh, you've got that going for it. Again, everyone's really inspired. It's not just a paycheck. It's probably hardly any paycheck, by the way, for these people. They probably worked a lot more than they got paid for. But the other thing I wanted to get into was um, you brought up KC. KC plays the uh, the pimp who just strolls by and says, "How'd you do?" to Superfly at one point in the in the bar. Should in, we show uh, it in Scatter's bar? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Well, just. Uh, well, we'll talk about it after. Man, what are you, on my case tonight or what? Mix got away, doesn't he? I was around there scatting them hoes and went crazy on me around there and embarrassing me and things, you know? Spilling that shit all over me. But I'm gonna be all right, crazy mother. I still love him, too. See that white thing out there? Yeah, the one with the ticket on. Okay, it's 10. <laughs> I ain't got to pay for it. Somebody else got to pay for it. I ain't. Look, look at this. Look. <laughs> Hey, Casey. Hey, what's happening? I see you still got that stuff on. I can't get them. Tied up. Shoes, let them top your feet. Yeah, my Hey, you know my wife, huh? Where you been all my life? Damn, y'all. Yeah. Still making my job hard. That's Casey. Look here, I got the gun. And, uh... Get y'all. Get y'all. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the very first time I saw it, me and my friend were uh somebody helped finance the film <laughs> and all they asked for was a walk-on because it has no context to anything and he's obviously not an actor in any way he's he's fucking kc like he's just that's like a documentary for a second you know but the thing is uh so this is what i'm getting at about the um in front of the camera and uh you know kc made a deal and the deal was give me that scene and you guys can use my vehicle and that's what <laughs> you know, priest drives. And that was a pretty good exchange. But um, even uh, even more, though, compounded is in the scene. It's Fat Freddy who walks up and says, what's up to KC? And uh, Fat Freddy had done about 28 years uh, for two homicides in real in, life, you know, yeah. lockdown. Yeah. And so he's he's the real shit, too. And he just started uh, acting. I think he was an activist in the very late 60s and then he started i guess this is definitely his first film and then he, began, he had a pretty good acting career for a long time and this is cool autobiography he made now actually really want to read that but what i'm saying is that's two guys who really lived the life uh casey and um charles mcgregor uh who's fat freddie uh, you know they meet up and so there was a decision is what i'm saying in superfly to have these real ass guys in the film you know and yeah, that really real, makes a difference yeah, definitely. He's so real, and that yeah, that is his real like custom El Dorado. The story that I, that I heard was that he was a uh, the, the the wardrobe guy was getting his shoes shined, and that car pulled up, and he was like, "Whoa!" That's, and, yeah. and Casey got out and sat next to him. And he's like, "Man, that's a great car. You know, we're shooting this movie. I'd love to get it in there." And he's like, "Okay, sure. Here's my number." And he said he couldn't get a hold of Casey for like weeks because Casey yeah. finally when he got a hold of him, he was like, "Man, ain't no black people making a movie. Like you're you're <laughs> you're full of it." And uh, he was like, no, no. And so then he finally got him to be in the movie. But I thought it was pretty, it's just an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so just, um, but then, and actually even more significant than KC, he's just, I, it's just a cool little cameo. Uh, Charles McGregor specifically, uh, who wound up being a really great actor, but he also has these slight nuances. Uh, you can tell that he's lived the street life. He's talked to cops in those kind of situations. 
he's he's been on the other side of a table of someone who's needs money you know he's 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 had to hold a gun to a dude's head he's he's legit you know and you can fucking feel it especially how legit he feels when he's wearing the ski mask or the um uh the stockings when he sh- hits up that guy in uh, new jersey oh, yeah. That's yeah, yeah real shit charles mcgregor yeah. yeah totally i mean he's amazing in the movie and then when he breaks down you know when he's w- w- when, when the cops have him you know the, the corrupt cops are questioning him and he's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. crying like a baby it's like whoa it's intense you know it's cool yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> but you guys were t- mentioning just kind of about obviously you know the car the the costumes in the movie you know, it's just, it's just amazing. And I think it's like taking kind of obviously what was happening around in that era, but cranking it up, you know, a couple notches, you know? Um, and I, I just think it's amazing. And obviously that adds and, and all the locations, the like grittiness of the locations, any studio film wouldn't have had access. You know, the guys who are making this movie no. have the street cred to really go in and to get these real places and these people and to make it really, you are so that's, right. That's what in the hood, just stand there for a second in the hood, this crew had the permits that yeah. are necessary yeah. for those neighborhoods, you know. Yeah, and 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 that's what really sets this movie apart from a lot of the others in this genre. Even though, like I said, I think it's it transcends it, <clears throat> is yeah. that it it has that air of authenticity to every piece of it. You know, like in terms of all the locations and and all these characters and and the way it's shot. Like you know, you don't really see a lot of the other black exploitation movies shot in a similar way or have the same. Sort I know of exactly movie. what you mean. Well, there's a verite quality. Yeah, well, there's a verite quality. Like, how about this? I think uh, pound for pound uh, across 110th Street is um, a very good example of a Hollywood produced black exploitation film that you could compare Superfly to. Same year, sameish locations, but it's you know it's got Anthony Quinn, but it's really good. I mean. Totally. great uh, across 120 is really great but you do if you just watch them as a double feature you do see that there's um some differences but you do see uh, a big thing what i'm trying to say is the um verite uh documentary style is is in no way in across 120 uh, 110th street but uh can i just mention one thing i know that that, that old clock is ticking but we I were know. mentioning ca- cast i just i have to mention one cast member and then we can moves into the topic um is uh carl lee who plays eddie oh yes he steals he steals the movie for me every time he's on i'm transfixed he's incredible first time i saw the film i was like who the fuck is this guy is this guy even an actor but he is very much an actor and he was um uh he he was married to shirley clark who made the connection and a portrait of jason and he's he's involved in the yeah he's involved in a portrait of jason he's he's like the other guy off screen it's him Carl Lee, Eddie, amazing, Billy Jackson, and they're kind of talking to, wow. to Jason and Porter Jason. So he's part of, um, uh, for lack of a better term, like intellectual downtown, creative uh, underground um, off 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 Broadway theater. So he's just he's loaded for bear. He is a great major acting talent, and he destroys as Eddie. He's and he sells best. those lines. He is the, he steals the fucking film, dude. I'm transfixed. So I just want to give a shout out to Carly. He had a sad life. He was into drugs, actually. He died in the 80s. But um, he was he was a major talent. And this at least this film got him to shine, you know. Uh, do so you want to show a scene? A Should we show a clip? Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Dealer's choice because um, I got ex- overexcited and I grabbed a bunch of petty <laughs> stuff. Um, there's the, well, you know, it's the very last one in the apartment where he's just saying, you know, uh, I'm just going to keep doing this and I'm going to be a black fucking prince. You know what I mean? In the apartment. 
Is that uh, uh, Eddie? Think about it. No. No, it's the other one. Uh, uh, and, uh, shit, I forgot what I called it. Sorry. <laughs> um, oh no. It's it's in the apartment. It's white and not like a, a night scene uh, with Eddie. Oh, I forgot what I called it, dude. It's not that um, <laughs> All right. I don't know what you called it. Sorry. <clears throat> oh my god! Really? Okay, so. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we will. You find it. Oh, this is terrible. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, clock's ticking, my friend. Um, well, I know. Uh, this is great. Well, here, I can, I can just, I what, can just hear. I have a question. On the, on the tip, I can ask this. On the tip okay. of what happened to Eddie? Like, what ha you know, we'd ever, yeah. we'd ever see what happened to the character after the movie. You know, after uh, the yeah, end, got, what happened to him? He probably just took the job that the corrupt cops gave him to be the number one, um, Drug dealer, you know, until they had him off, you know, uh, at some point, I guess. Right. Yeah. Oh, you know what? You know what it is? You know what he became? He became uh, the new uh, scatter scatter. Yeah. It's that simple. And that's I mean, another incredible uh, performance in, in, in the film as well. You know, I mean, you know, the dude that plays scatter and, and that whole dynamic between, you know, those two characters in terms of Evan. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I missed it. And uh, so go ahead and play. Um. Yeah. Think about it. That's great. Too. That's great, too. You know. Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. And I went along with that thing of yours about getting out because I had nothing else. When I get out, what am I going to do? I don't know nothing else but dope, baby. Taking it, selling it. Bankrolling some other small-time pusher. You know, you got this fantasy in your head about getting out of the life and setting that other world on its ear. I love how it's direct to camera. What the yeah. fuck are you going to do except oh, hustle? No. Oh my God, dude. Besides pimping. And you really ain't got the stomach for that. Now, man, I ain't putting you down. If it wasn't for you, I probably wouldn't be here. I'd be OD'd someplace. Fuck. I'm just trying to make it real, baby, like it is. I mean, maybe this is what you supposed to do. Maybe this is what you've grown to. I mean, just think about it. Don't throw it out. Just, just think about it. Oh my God, awesome. that's acting, guys. That is acting. Man, I so went good. along with that thing of yours about getting. So, um, so I just wanted to, you know, uh, highlight Eddie because Eddie's very important, as we were saying earlier. There's the dichotomy between the two partners, and uh, he does sell out. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's amoral, and he doesn't have a conscience because he does sell out Priest. And uh, Priest is trying to have some, some morals and uh, conscience. So, you know, they went rip that way, you know. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's one of the interesting things about just the dynamic in, that, in the movie, where it's like, because what, what happens in the plot is it, it, it basically emerges that the police are corrupt, there, you know, the police commissioner is the guy who's been supplying the cocaine to shatter, scatter, not shatter, <laughs> scatter, and uh, to, and then eventually to directly to Youngblood and Eddie, and that's what rip, that's what comes between them because Eddie is basically just like, hey, this is our, you know, ticket to doing this, you know, without being punished. We can, we can, yeah. we can do this the rest of our lives, and yeah. you know, we'll He's be taking set. the deal. Well, yeah. very, very briefly, another great thing, Phil Fenty, you know, respect. 
is there's there's um, there's something going on underneath the surface somewhat about general uh, black determination. There's um, because the thing is, if priest took the deal like Eddie does and wants to, it means that you're always answering to the boss upstairs. You, you, you don't have your own self-determination in your life. You can't make your own choices. You're, you're a puppet. And that's, and that's what happened with Scatter. You know, you just like, oh, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do? And then you get thrown out because you're no longer, uh, you know what I mean, worth to the people who really run shit, the uh, evil, powerful white guys. So that's a, big, that's a big thing. And I think that's why many audiences cheered at the very end. Maybe we can show the end real quick as we barrel through this, is, is, is Priest is taking control of his life because he could not control his life if he took that deal. That's if very significant, another, I think. If he had another obligation, you know, to some extent, you know, which that would have been, right? Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and then just... As he doesn't control segue, his life. Of course. That's what he wants. He wants the independence. That's what this movie is really about. And one of the right. things that's really interesting is uh and, and speaks obviously to just you know how smart and entrepreneurial uh priest is throughout this whole film is he thinks 12 steps ahead uh real mm -hmm. quick i know the clock's ticking but i wanted to get this in because it's it's really amazing that um you know he thinks ahead to because you know you know scatter gives him the envelope with the information of who the commissioner is so you got who this person yep. is Yep. Youngblood thinks ahead. He he contacts the mob, and this is and this really shows too the clout that Youngblood has in his community. Like he can go to the mob and get shit done. White killers. <laughs> That's what he does. Like, he knows that scares the shit out of the police commissioner. No, no, no. I've got white killers. White ones. Yeah, and and um, yeah. he's got the white ones, and and um and uh and, and the fact that yeah he has that clout but he's also and he also ropes his girl into it too and she's so amazing in this too just for she's incredible in this movie too the the she love scene outrageous but the thing is is that you know um the fact yeah. that she's in on this when 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 he decides to go to Eddie for his money gets the money but he knows Eddie's going to double cross him and he puts together this elaborate scheme where she takes the money and switches the suitcases and she's in on it and totally down for it too it's so great as, as a, as a yeah. story point in this movie it's another reason yeah, they to bond in the elevator it's really cute it's really great and then when they switch the suitcases Right. And, and, and so now let's get to the ending because the ending's incredible and the ending tru truly is just amazing. I, I love it. And I've heard, I've heard when it would happen, you know, in, in black neighborhoods, the ending, you couldn't hear anything. The film just disappeared. The audio, people were going completely insane. So let's watch. I believe it. How this closes. I think you ought to know something. I had the very best killers there are. White killers white ones baby so you better take <laughs> good care of me nothing nothing better happen to one hair on my gorgeous head can you dig it he just walks away because like you said he's 12 steps ahead and he sorted this out he sorted it out he played it right where he could just fucking walk away you know, and um, and you know you know what I really like. There's an action scene right before it where he kind of kung fu's the cops, you know. But the really big ending is is verbal, which is a real. It's really a, it, that is so super fly to have people jumping out of their seats over like dialogue and totally. him saying my gorgeous head. Like that's when they want. They went crazy probably, you know, and enjoyed him karate chopping, you know, and stuff. But um, that's 
what happened. He didn't like shoot a guy in the head or something. He just went like, I sorted my shit out. You're fucked. I'm out of here, you know? And he leaves more heroic because he's got, you know, he's got, like you said, the morals and the ethics and he finally rises above the system. And we show that you can't, even though he was this drug dealer that was, you know, like preying off of his own, you know, community and beating people up, people probably died like because of his actions, et cetera, you know, that he's like an anti-hero, but he becomes heroic. He rises, he rises out of it and there's no, you can't judge him for his life before because the system the legal system is corrupt from top to bottom too, you know, all the way to the top. So, yeah, yeah it's, that's right. Total corruption straight up and down. So, uh, well, it's, it's, barreling it's awesome. toward, oh, please. Well, just, I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's, it's just awesome that, you know, he's, you know, and, and also in the line too, right before that, in that scene, the, the clip we watched, he says like, you know, like, you know, you, you think you own me and he turns the tables. No, I actually own you. And I think that's like the most empowering thing. And then, and then, and then that's, he basically rides off into the sunset, like you know John Wayne, you know, into right. his, into you know, uh, into his car. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And one thing I know well, you want to bring it's a, up. It's a happy ending. It you is. You know, it's funny. It Superfly yeah. is a happy ending. And you know, it's you know, it's God. Everything's so strange then and always. Yeah. But groups like the NAACP, mm-hmm. uh, you know, black empowerment groups, you know, pos- black positivity. Uh, you know, they hated this thing. And a lot of them just wanted to, like, have the reels seized and, like, you know, the film not played, burn the prints. But sometimes they would say, go back, reshoot the ending of Superfly and have him shot in the head and killed. And I thought, ew, that's kind of weird to, like, that's what you do want. Because, you know, it's it's like, you know, the morality, the consequences of the immorality, you know, the, you know, the judgment is death. And I thought, God, there's nothing else. There's no other way to think of it in this sort of, this sort of binary way where it's like, uh, he's a sinner. This is what, this is what a bad black man gets is shot in the head. And I'm like, what do you guys think? That's so, it's kind of a twisted way to look at it, you know? For the a new different ending of Superfly. Oh, I, I we see that a lot in American movies that people need to get need to pay for their crimes. You know, in a normal, a lot of times you see that in like a series or something that someone is like a a bad guy killed somebody. And you know that he's going to be he's going to pay for it at some point. Like but Americans it, kind of want that a lot a lot of the times. Well, I but think again, it's also complicated by like like bad black. This is what happens when you're bad as a black person. <laughs> it's it's kind I, I of this moralizing. Yeah, you know, it's like. It's like um, you can't have a happy, you can't be a criminal and a black man and have a happy ending. You just can't. And, and, and that's what, I mean, and, and, and this movie being as real as it is, I mean, you know, it, it is also in the, in the confines of the situation that Youngblood came up through, you know, this is what his life was, you know, and that's, and, and, and this is where he had to apply his talents was into this world. That's all the system gave him. And that's what, so that's a, that would be a fundamental, that would go against the themes of the movie completely. Um, I know. And he, you know, he bottom line, he's a businessman. Exactly. uh, By the way, this is happening right now in this country where there's talented black men and entrepreneurs and they don't have, you know, they're not going to Yale and uh, the drug game. It's not just that it's alluring, like, Oh, I can make a lot of cash. If you're stupid, you're not actually going to make a lot of cash. But if you're a sharp guy and an entrepreneur, in a lot of cases in really fucked up neighborhoods, um, you're going to do this kind of business, you know. So, uh, yeah, yeah, let's do uh, it. Barreling, barreling bearing- towards the elephant in the room, which is maybe the most famous element of Superfly on a pop cultural level. Should we just go right to it? 
Let's real Gentlemen? quick before. Real, real, oh, okay. All right. Sorry. Real, let's make Marcus, him wait one on, more second. On. Go ahead. Let's make him wait one more second. I just wanted to make please, sure you got please. this in because it's, we're kind of on the theme of it. Is you didn't really yeah. touch on the reaction of the cocaine montage. That just oh, God, right. Get it for twenty seconds. Go. It's an awful one fucking hour. I got to say, yeah. So uh, actually, Ron O'Neill wasn't very happy about the um, what he called the cocaine commercial which was the montage we watched earlier. And uh, there was, um, yeah, there was a lot of criticism. It was, it seemed galling to basically have this thing that seemed, uh, that made, uh, like literally think about, it's the tenets of advertising. It looks cool. It sounds cool. It's like selling a, it's like a Coca-Cola commercial, like grab some cocaine. You know, it just seemed uh, so gratuitous and outrageous. And that was actually probably the most outrageous thing to um, black empowerment organizations Again, it was galling. It was just like, what are you guys doing? It seemed unnecessary and gratuitous to them. Um, and it is kind of sad to hear that um, that uh, Ron O'Neill himself was was not into it. He didn't like it. He didn't like it being included. My last note, I have a perfect transition, gents. What did Curtis Mayfield say about the film and the protest? He said, you guys want to clean up this movie. You guys want to clean up Superfly. Why don't you start cleaning up the streets? There you go. Totally. Do that first. Yes. <laughs> and that is a perfect transition to the most famous element of the movie. Hey guys, you ready? One, two, three. <laughs> so slow, Marcus. Um, <laughs> yeah, gate, a die cut action. Yeah. A die cut, baby. So, um, I mean, guys, uh, the greatest soundtrack of all time. Uh, it's oh, some it's of my so favorite good. music ever. It's like yeah. top 10 music ever. Forget every context, you know. Yeah, it's outside just, of the movie, it's great, and then within the context of the movie, it's great. It adds multi layers. Yeah. It's like it's almost like a a narrator or like a Greek chorus or something. Yeah, you know is. the way it's contributing to absolutely. Uh, Freddie's dead. So powerful. You know, it's interesting on Freddie's dead. It never the the vocal version doesn't actually play in the movie. I know. It, it just I plays in the opening credits. Also, song that never makes it into the movie is um the so the other song about Eddie. Where he's like, uh, oh, help me, guys. Uh, but Eddie? Eddie? Yeah. Eddie, you should know better. Right, which is That's written yeah. for the part when he double crosses him, but it's not in the movie, mm -hmm. tragically. It's incredible. But, but it's also right, awesome right. that just like the movie, or sorry, Curtis Mayfield's lyrics in, 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 in the music is critiquing what's happening on screen. You know, like you were saying, it Absolutely. adds another dimension to the to the film, which yeah. is just so fucking cool. But yeah, it's just the best. So yeah. many great songs. Little Child. I guess, I know. I guess that's the only song that he had written beforehand. But it but it totally works, you know, totally in the works. context of the opening. I, I'm floored by every song. There's the two big ones, of course, but some of those quieter songs. Um, and Give Me Your Love is incredible, actually. Incredible. And by yeah. the way, side note. I do love that love scene, and I, every time I watch it, I love it. Has this kind of trippy um, expressionist <laughs> stylization, like meaning, like it's like slow motion when, stuff. Yeah, when they're kind of slow motioning, and, and like even their sounds are getting kind of exaggerated and, and it's <laughs> yeah. really cool, trippy uh, sex scene. It's just yeah. great. Even the sex scene is really cool, and they just go for it. It's long. Yeah, it's awesome. Trippy, and I, I imagine what that was like in the theater. Just like this yeah. super heavy turn on on this huge screen. <laughs> so, but but also, give me your love is playing, you know. And give me your yeah. love was a hit too. It was covered by um, Barbara Mason, I think, uh, and that's a great cover. You guys should seek that out if you like the soundtrack and don't know that there's a, a female vocal cover of Give Me Your Love. But um, that's no, cool. I mean, and you know, look, Curtis Mayfield is God basically, and it breaks my heart what happened to him. You know, he 
scaffolding fell on him and he got paralyzed in 1990. Like what? But it's almost just like, you know, like God was like, you're too beautiful and pure to uh, be on the stupid planet or something, (laughs) you know, because I'm I'm very Curtis Mayfield is like a big deal for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, me too. And I I think it's it's always his lyrics from the time he started, his lyrics were always, you know, um, sociological, political. Mm -hmm. He had his, his finger on the pulse of what was happening. What is the song like? Uh, don't worry if there's a hell below, we're all gonna go. We're all gonna go. That's his first <laughs> album. Yeah. That's a great song. No, it but is. but Superfly, it's like um, I don't even know what to say about the music. It's we all. I'm sure most people listening here love it. It's just uh, and, and the thing is, it drives the film so much. There's the Greek chorus element, and also it's it's a little more cutting on uh, the social commentary than the film is itself in a way, or it, or it builds upon it. You know, but also it's just um, it's just the engine that drives the film, which is very much like Sweetback, which we are absolutely doing a one fucking hour on. Sure. Uh, But but, you know, it's it's I don't think it's influenced by Sweetback, but both films like the drive never ends. It's got this driving internal engine that propels it. Yeah. And it's just so beautiful. And like if just take a step back. It, that's a big distinction too. It's hard to remember to think of a time before every black exploitation film had a big black exploitation soundtrack. But like, you know, films in general, like across 110th uh, yeah. Street, there's yeah. a lot of orchestral scoring. There's some traditional stuff going on still. But um, and of course, this was started with Sweetback and Shaft. But but I think that those two started it. But Superfly perfected it. There is not a, a, a lick of a conventional uh, film score. You no, know, but no. it just makes it so vital and it looks and it's it sounds like the way those streets look. He just is a genius. And and last little note, you guys probably saw this. He would have demo tapes, Curtis, and he'd bring them to the set and he'd play them back. Yeah. Isn't that cool? So they play cool. it and then do the scene, right? Yeah, it's so cool. They play it back. Well, just even maybe before they did a take, like it's just playing, you know. Like Eddie, you should know better, or something in the apartments. Just god damn, dude. You yeah, know? all these people coming together. Like, right, you know, when we were right. when we were talking about that, we saved the best kind of for last. But you know, it really, it really just is, just you know, all everyone coming together on this movie is just wow. yeah, right. Curtis brought Magic. you know, one hundred and ten percent. You know, like, uh, and and you know, he didn't have to like like. Uh, you know, like, I wonder what he was thinking, like, oh, Superfly, I'm in. But you know what? He probably got, he had a cool talk with Philip Fenty, you know, and maybe uh, Parks Jr. and maybe, and probably Ron O'Neill. He probably had a talk and those guys broke it down to him, like, what the intention is here. You know what I mean? Like, um, because it's it was a very small film. Like, think of a world where Superfly was a bomb, you know, it just disappeared and nobody cared about it, you know? <clears throat> yeah, um, I read he was really excited but, to be be like a soundtrack composer, like thinking of himself as like Henry Mancini or something. That it was like an, okay. an amazing opportunity for him wow. to like... Quincy Jones. You know, to, to do that, yeah. Maybe yeah, Quincy right. Jones, because Quincy Jones was yeah. fucking shredding at that time as totally. a film score composer. <laughs> Dollars soundtrack. Oh, so, Yeah. yeah. Um, will we have a minute or two for final notes, gents? Final you, notes. You know I mean, talked about it. Every time my fingers touch brains, I'm Superfly TNT. <laughs> Superfly TNT. Give me thirty seconds. You got it. I my evidence that Superfly is a weird special art film is the subsequent sequel, because Shaft had Shaft's big score, Shaft in Africa, getting kind of campy, getting kind of corny. But Superfly TNT, the sequel, first of all, directed by Ron O'Neill, 
written by uh, um, Alex Haley, who, you know, subsequently did Roots. It's set in motherfucking like Rome, like Italy. <laughs> so they immediately look the Coliseums, dude, and, Sh- and Superfly. And so uh, I watched it because it's one of those movies people hear about, but I don't know anybody really watches it. I didn't ever watch it. Watched it last summer. It's very odd. I don't. I won't say it's good, and I won't even recommend it. It's like it's entertaining, but it is so different than Superfly. I mean, obviously, location changes things, but there's also some really beautiful, cool, tender scenes with Sheila Frazier. He's still with his girl. Like if you think about it, this is what happened. He leaves Manhattan with Sheila, with with uh, Georgia. They go right to Rome. Like that in the narrative of this film and he still has ill threads like he looks fucking bananas you know like like cowhide you know jackets and stuff <laughs> but it's but it's a film about like black back black militancy and and numbers and like running uh, money laundering and stuff like that in in north africa and italy I, I recommend it as a curio and and again i'm just saying they made a very uncommercial film that probably disappointed and confused superfly fans but that's what i'm saying these guys had weird integrity they're interesting people and they made a, a total, like, bonkers sequel. That's I just want to say it's one of my favorite seconds. movies. One of my favorite movies of the 70s. Um, it gets better with every viewing. Uh, highly recommend same, it. Same, same. Uh, it's just same, same, same. One of the coolest movies of all time. Put up the end oh. title card, dude. Put up that beautiful um, 1930s end card. Look, that is the end card <laughs> for Superfly. That's what a beautiful choice. It has so much style. Style to burn, even the last frame. Well, guys, yeah, or uh, this was a challenging one fucking hour. I have, I need more than an hour. So we'll yeah, see. yeah. Who knows? Maybe we'll have it's to great. do. A, maybe we'll have to find another way to uh, get out more thoughts of on this movie. Um, I like, well, I, like how, I like how you think, Evan. There's always overtime. I know what you're thinking. You know what I'm thinking. We got some other plans. Uh, we got some big think plans. Think about it. Think about it. <laughs> it's always overalls. There's always. Yeah. more overalls um all right guys that was a challenging so fucking hour uh on superfly but you know man it just goes to show you uh, you know it's it's really an amazing film and there's so much to talk about it even beyond very special a fucking yeah. hour rewatch it if you haven't seen it in a while you know or or, or you thought like eh, it's okay it's really special yeah it really Three thumbs is. up yeah one of a kind deal um <laughs> uh uh yeah, so uh, let's let's touch on next week's uh, one fucking hour. Next well, it's week, Thanksgiving weekend. Well, right. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and we were thinking, what is a film feast? A film gorge. It's long. It's got big fat ass scenes. It's an epic. It has indulgent. It goes too far. It overstuffs itself. What's perfect Satyricon? for Thanksgiving? Satyricon? Maybe. Nah, that's kind of slow, but it's kind of slow. Kind of slow. Kind of slow. <laughs> no, what we're referring to is, that was for you. What we're referring to is uh, Bob Fosse's All. That. We each that. get a word. We each, we each get a word. Uh, wow, never mind. All that jazz. <laughs> jazz. <laughs> Wait, let me eat this fruit. Okay, um. <clears throat> yeah, all, all that jazz. Uh, I want the next- clock, fool. I want the <laughs> clock. I mean, strawberries. <laughs> all that but jazz. Yeah, we're doing all that jazz. That's it. All that it's a monster. And guess what? Guess what? If we thought Superfly was bad to just do for an hour, all that jazz. It's going to be oh, brutal. Like, yeah. like the open heart <laughs> surgery footage. 
during the dance number. Oh, There's so many, yeah, so many setups. It's showtime, it, folks. It's going to be rough. It's going to be a nightmare. One of the best of the 70s. Um, definitely get your oh, pre-watch in of all that jazz, especially if you yeah. have never seen it. I'm sure there's a lot of you who have never oh, seen it. It's not what you think because you'll be lost. If, if you'll, you'll be lost. lost. Yeah. Well, you're always lost if you don't watch um, the movie. Yes. But, but um, you know, it's a monster, and it's uh, it's um, it's so fun. It is. I need to rewatch it soon because you know to, to do some yeah. homework. But I can't wait. I've seen it a million times, a million times, um, and uh, it's flawless. And it's an epic. And it's it's one of those last big fat seventies movies too. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just those big monster overstuffed mm-hmm. turkeys. So again, that's why we're doing it for Thanksgiving. So. <laughs> okay. Bob Fuss. All right. Uh, well, thank you guys uh, for joining us uh, for one fucking hour at Superfly, and we'll see you next week. And your moment of zen and when we made superfly we made it about the way things actually are and we hoped it would be judged and criticized on that basis uh but my from my observation you know superfly has been largely criticized from some some you know at some sphere some some plane some plateau you know that has no bearing on the film motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef